the name. Holy, holy, holy is our God. There is really no other name that would be described as holy, is there? I mean, when we really think about that, it's not a word that is used to describe any other name, which is holy. It's a, it's a description, that holy description is given strictly to God. It's amazing. When we think of all of, all of creation, that that one attribute that's attributed to God we have no other name where somebody says that's just a holy name. Just a holy name, right? When you think about names for a minute, they matter. And names are obviously deeply personal, are they not? Um, we spend time thinking about them when uh, children are named. We think, spend time thinking about them when pets are named, Right? Names are actually given a lot of thought. And you realize that names are often forever. They're, they're just there. It's not something you go back and you just readily say, I'm going to change this later, right? Now, you can, but most people, when you do, kind of go, uh, I'm still calling you this, right? right? You're still this to me, right? Every, every baseball coach I ever had growing up, it didn't matter when I was in high school or whether I was six years old, I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden I became like a little child. They all called me Timmy. And so it was, I, I was constantly, yeah, it's like Darth Vader. Um, actually, I want to be Luke Skywalker. So, um, so but one of, the, one of the amazing parts is, is that we have names, and names matter. They they matter to us, and we have unique names, and we are called by those names. And so names often also conjure up a picture, an image. When you think of the name Buster Posey, there's an image that comes to mind. There's an image of many people don't have to be baseball fans to, to know that he's a, a baseball player. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Let's, uh, all right. So it keeps happening. We'll just kind of move to the other side of the force field, and, uh, and we'll, we'll go back and forth. So, um, but when you think of the name Taylor Swift, that invokes an image, too. When you think of the name John Wayne, again, People know what you're talking about. And it's not just a man. It's not just specifically as it relates to John Wayne, this picture of being a man, but it's this idea of being this kind of rough and tough guy. The truth is, is that names become synonymous with really who we are. If I say McDonald's to you, it conjures up exactly what it is. When you speak of Coke, of cola, well, it conjures up a lot of things, right? I mean, Coke, that name is used not just to represent a single product, but it's now used to represent a specific type of product, right? Kind of all soda. But because they're synonymous with who we are, it's also one of the reasons that we protect those names. We protect our family name. One of the things that children are often instructed is, listen, you're so-and-so, you're a Swanson, keep the name good. Right? 
In the same way, we have that charge as followers of Christ that we're to represent Christ well. But there is one name that is above all names, and that name is Jesus. And as we continue in our study this morning in Acts 3, it's through the name of Jesus that the impossible is made possible and the blessing of his truth is made known. So let's go ahead and look at Acts 3 together. We're going to stand up and read this together. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to go through verse 10 this morning. And this is what it says. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to them. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to each of us, Lord, that your word would penetrate deeply within our hearts. Father, may we see the value and importance of your name. May we see the power of of Jesus' name. Father, may we be a people who live in the power of Jesus' name. Lord God, may this morning be marked by us putting the burdens, concerns at your feet. Lord, may we hand to God everything that is ours, everything that we are and have, may they be yours. And Lord, may we walk in the freedom of your grace through the power of your name. Father, move powerfully among us this morning. And may your spirit work and reveal and direct each of our lives, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. It's interesting this week, the power of the name of Jesus Christ, and the truth is, is that the power of the name of Christ is used throughout Scripture. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles call upon the name of Jesus. And power in the name of Jesus Christ redeems lives and moves us to joyfully declare His glory through our miraculous testimony. 
power in the name of Jesus Christ redeems lives and moves us to joyfully declare his glory through our miraculous testimony. It's a name of power that redeems and declares his glory. The truth is, is that the power of the name of Christ simply works not because the name in and of itself is just a title, but it's because the name is representative of who Jesus is. His name is all of what encompasses him. In fact, Jewish tradition actually held that the name, when you spoke a name, that that name was representative of all of that individual's being. And so the name of Jesus invokes the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It invokes the power of his victory over death and his victory over sin. See, this portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is often taught to children. In fact, if you've grown up within the church and went to vacation Bible school, the song, Silver and Gold Have I None, is commonplace. It's a song that many kids have learned. In fact, I still have images of that as a child in VBS, listening to this song called, Silver and Gold Have I None, but all that I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then you did this whole thing where you walked around and went, and he went walking and leaping and praising God, right? This whole thing. And the truth is, is that for many of us, we see that story or we learn that story in the context of the physical healing of the lame man. But the truth is, is that this story is far more than about the physical healing of a lame man. See, as a result of us, we, many of us have been encouraged by the healing of the lame man, but we miss the primary focus of the passage, specifically as children, that this passage is really about the redemption of man through the name of Christ. So verse 1 begins this way. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. We know from Acts 2, verses 46, that this was a daily occurrence amongst the believers in Jerusalem. The ninth hour was the, the second time for prayer and sacrifice within the temple during the day. In fact, there were only two times during the day. One was in the morning around 9 a.m., and then the other one was at the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so, as a result of this, this was one of the two busiest times at the temple. It's where the largest crowd would gather. And so, in verse 2, it says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, and they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is, called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, it's important to understand that the lame man is crippled from birth. This is a, a, a genetic condition. It's a, it's a condition that he's born with. In reality, it's a life sentence. It's something that because of he's born with this, there's really no cure for it. There's no fix for it. He's stuck with this, this 
aspect of lame feet and lame legs, these legs that don't work and these feet that don't work for the rest of his life. It was a life sentence. And so he is brought to this gate on a daily basis to receive alms. Jamie Polhill points out that the rabbis during this time taught that there were three pillars of the Jewish faith. The Torah, worship, and the showing of charity or kindness. And with their minds set on worship, those who entered the temple for the evening sacrifice and prayer would be particularly disposed to practice their piety by generously giving alms to this lame beggar. So this beggar was, this lame man was placed at the entrance to the temple or near the gate each day during the most busy time so that he might receive alms, he might receive charity. They might give him most likely money. Now it's interesting that he's had to be brought back there every single day, isn't it? That the need is not being satisfied. It's not being met. You see, he was brought to daily to the beautiful gate to receive alms from those who are worshiping in the temple. Now, it's described as the beautiful gate. There's really no other reference to it in Scripture, but Josephus actually tells that this was a gate that was specifically made of Corinthian brass. It was considered to be more beautiful than any gate that was full of silver or gold. The reflection on it was supposed to be brilliant. The colors in it were supposed to be brilliant, and it stood 75 feet tall. Here he was laid at this beautiful gate, and yet the alms were never enough. He was brought back there day after day after day. Verse 3 and 5 through 5 says, As seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, there's an important piece in this passage. This was a man in need. Peter and John, probably because they had gone to the temple, had probably passed him on other days. Being that he was brought there daily, they had probably walked on by. But this day, he turned and asked them specifically to receive alms from them. Peter and John could have easily walked on by. They could have done what often many of us do. We don't want somebody begging from us, and so we often say, don't make eye contact, right? This is important because Peter and John not only make eye contact, but they fix their gaze on them. They stare right at them. Because in that moment when you look at someone, you're communicating, acknowledging that they exist. More importantly, when you are looking at them and you are continuing to look at them, you're acknowledging a level of care or concern or reality that they are a person, not just something else. 
One of the greatest insights that I've gained from working in the nomadic shelter has been the number of people who have said it's nice to be treated as a person. We tend to put people in a box, don't we? If you're in this condition, it must be because of this. And they share about how it's nice to be able to have this being treated as a, as, as a person, not as just something on the street that's looking to get something free. See, Peter and John communicate a love for this man. They communicate a love for him by acknowledging him, by acknowledging that he exists, by acknowledging that he has a need. They communicate love. And so this man, it says, looked back and he expected to receive something. He fixed his attention on them. See, he had faith that they were going to provide him with something. Now that they had acknowledged that he existed, now that they saw his need, there was a confidence that they were going to provide something. But little did he know that what he was going to be provided with was not what he was actually hoping for. This is the essence of Christ. That the very thing we think we need is not the thing that we actually need. See, the Jews thought they were going to get a kingdom ruler over Israel and reestablish and restore Israel and restore the nation. What they got was a a humiliated Savior who came and died on this cross, was treated as a criminal. And he died and he rose again. And what they got was they got salvation for those that would repent and believe on Jesus. Did it look different than they expected? Absolutely. Is it what they actually needed? Yeah. Is it what they wanted? Well, we know that the Jews often followed, as Kellen shared earlier, they followed Jesus because Jesus could provide physical bread. And Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood that he was there to provide spiritual bread, a life-giving bread, the true bread that was needed. And so in verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but I, what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now you can imagine this for a moment. You can imagine this man looking going, what? Think about it for a moment. What? You said you were going to give me something. Well, I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Now, that's an interesting thing, is it not? Because notice what happens here. Notice what happens to this man. He, he, he doubts in the moment that it might be enough, right? Sometimes we get that same way with Jesus. I know that Jesus says that this is true, but I don't know that it's really going to be true in my life. I, I know that we can have peace in the midst of turmoil, but really? When it gets that bad, I know that when I'm allowing God to instruct my children as I'm being faithful 
to his word and teaching my children that God loves my children even more than I love them. It comes back to a trust. And for many of us, we celebrate and we look at this lame man and he gets healed. But notice what happens before he experiences the healing. It says, and Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. This man, while he'd been told to rise up and walk, doesn't immediately stand on his own. Oh, he's healed immediately in just a moment. But you can imagine for a moment, he needed help. He needed that place for somebody to come alongside and say, listen, just step forward and you're going to experience the power of the living God through Jesus Christ. And so what we see here, we see two truths about the name of Jesus. The first truth is this, that it's the most valuable gift that believers have to offer others. It's the most valuable gift that believers have to offer others. Verse 6 says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. As Christ's church, we have nothing meaningful to give to the world apart from him. Apart from Christ, we are just another social organization. That's it. We might be well-intended and we might want to do things in serving others, but apart from Christ, we have nothing to offer the world. Because our hope is in Jesus. Our salvation is in Jesus. Our righteousness is in Jesus. His righteousness is in us. 2 Corinthians 6.10, and I want to encourage you to write that verse down. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says this. It says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What was that supposed to be? But as servants of God, in verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way. As servants of God, we are to live as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Because the greatest possession we have is Jesus Christ. That's the greatest possession. That's the freedom that you and I have in Jesus, is that he is the greatest possession that we have. He is the one that we have to offer to others. The disciples were having possessions laid at their feet, but they weren't their own. That was to disperse the wealth out amongst the other believers so that they might live. It wasn't so that the other believers might get wealthy. It was that under persecution in Jerusalem, they might live as they were losing their jobs. David Guzik points out, for some people to say silver and gold I do not have is about the worst thing that can be said. They feel the church is in ruins if it must say silver and gold I do not have. But it's much worse that the church never has the spiritual power to say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's true. The power that we have is in Christ. Don't ever believe that the power of a church is in its finances. 
that the success of a church is measured in its finances. Don't fall into that trap. The early church was thriving, and it had next to nothing. Throughout history, the most powerful churches that have worked had next to nothing because what they recognized was it wasn't about material wealth or wealth in this life. It was about wealth in Christ. And that's the beauty of this passage. This week, I was having a, an echocardiogram done and one of the things that over time, having a number of these done, they're quite boring after a while. And you're just left to kind of lie on your side, you know, and you're awake. And so the, the echo tech, who I've had numerous times, begins talking with me and talking with her. I'm not sure if I started it or she started it. And we, we start talking, and she actually begins to talk about growth, personal growth of life. So she said, so some of the things that you've walked through, I'm sure that you have experienced personal growth. And I said, I'm sure that, yeah, that personal growth is a part of it. But the truth is, is that I'm here because of the grace of God. That's why I'm here. And she postured back for a moment. and She waited and she began talking kind of in circles. And she said, I have to tell you, she said, I... I really enjoy your attitude. I, you have a good attitude about what you've gone through. And she said, but I have to tell you, the other part of that is, is that it's only been in the past few months that when somebody speaks of Jesus, I just don't cringe. And as we talked together, as we shared together, she actually put the scope down and she just sat on the side. And we just started talking about life. We started talking about different things, and she began sharing with me about some of the challenges that she was going through with her daughter. So we started talking about those challenges. As a result of that conversation, as a result of sharing together about the work of Jesus just in my own life, she just stopped before we left, and she said, I just want to tell you that I appreciate our conversation today. Now, I've had this person several times over the course of several months, and I would say she's probably the most disconnected of all of the texts to her patients. It's not a criticism of her. It's just the truth. She turns around, and I went to shake her hand as I left, and she opened her arms and just wrapped me up. Big old hug. Here's the point. The best thing that we have to offer people is Jesus. In the moment, they may want to cringe. But as we walk in love with them, as we understand that it's Jesus, that it's Jesus that redeems and changes lives, it's Jesus who does the work in our life and in others' lives, then I become free to allow people to experience power of Jesus and work in my life and in work in their life. Now, I don't know what God's doing in our heart today. 
What I do know is, is that that day, Jesus was doing something. And he was doing something because he's the most important gift, the most valuable gift that we possess as believers. Our counsel needs to be from God's word. The most important thing that we have to offer is Christ. It's not food. It's not our opinions. It's not our money. It's Jesus. As believers, we need to recognize that our goal is not simply to better this life for people. But our goal is for people to have the best life in eternity. The second truth is that it has the power to redeem lives. It makes the impossible possible. It is the power to redeem lives. It makes the possible impossible or the impossible possible. It says in verse 7 through 8, He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Now, this is a passage that's actually predicted in Isaiah 35 through 6 when it speaks about the, mess, the Messiah that would, would come. And this is what it says. Isaiah 35, 6 says this. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is what's happened. He leaps. They understood this. The people understood this. This is Christ at work. This name represents Christ. It represents the Messiah. I've been healed just as was prophesied would happen. Now, are all people going to experience physical healing? Not in this way. But what he is saying is that we will experience spiritual healing in this way. Notice, it's an immediate work. When you repent and believe on Christ, it's immediate. You don't wait for, till tomorrow. You don't, you don't wait till tomorrow to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's now. The other part that we see here is it's complete. The word that's actually used here in Greek actually ties back to the Hebrew, and it's actually only used twice to describe the ankle and feet. And it's a word that's only used by Luke. Now, that's quite unique because Luke is a physician. And what it actually speaks of is the binding together of joints coming together and forming something new. It's a new formation. And so what happens here is he leaps and there's this new formation that's taken place as his ankles and feet are made strong. It's a completed work. When you repent and believe on Jesus Christ, your life is redeemed. It's a completed work. There's nothing more that you have to do. That's good news. That's good news. There's nothing more. Why is there nothing more? Because it's a work that Jesus did. It wasn't about you. It's about what he did. And the beauty of it is it's completed and it's immediate. Now, 
Does he redeem all physical life? He redeems all physical life for those who are in Christ. It may not be today, but there will be a day in my body where this piece of metal that resides right here is gone. And there will be a day where this part of a cow that's sitting right here on this thing here is gone. And there will be a day when the plastic piece right here is gone. And there will be a day where I am perfected in the glory of Jesus Christ. And there will be a day when we are all perfected in the glory of Jesus Christ. And so there is a day that's coming where we will all be physically healed for those who have repented and believed on Christ. That's good news. That's good news. This is a little different story than the lame man who just jumps and goes walking and leaping and praising God that we learned about in Vacation Bible School. Because the depth of what he's getting at is that he is restoring us and redeeming us, and that's the power of Christ's name. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, I want to encourage you to write that down as well. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says simply this. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's awesome. The redeeming name of Christ. So, how are we to respond to the name of Christ then? Well, notice this man. Notice how he responds says here in verse 8, it says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Now, his response here, picture this for a moment. All of us have had those moments where we've been sitting too long, and you try to stand up, and you're like, oh, right? There's no leaping in it, right? It's you're lucky if you don't break something. The truth is, is that the point that he's making here is that This is confirmation that the healing is complete and immediate. That he leaps. He doesn't just stand up. He jumps up. It's full and complete. This is exciting. This is what's happening. He's saying, listen, your legs haven't worked in 40 years. We know he was 40 years old because Acts 4 tells us that, that he was around 40 and so he had been crippled for 40 years and all of a sudden he's healed and he leaps up. Imagine that for a moment. This man's never walked in his life. He's helped up, and the moment he's helped up, he sees and feels the strength in his legs, and he jumps. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's pretty encouraging because I don't jump a whole lot anymore as it is, right? The truth is, is that we can begin to see that this is a completed work. This is what Christ wants us to see is that his salvation is completed, his redemption is complete and immediate. And so we're to respond to the name of Jesus here by seeking his presence in worship. Notice what it says. He leapt up, he leapt and he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Now here's the thing. 
That seems like, yeah, well, that makes sense. But you just found out you have the ability to walk. You just found out you have the ability to walk. For most of us, our first thought wouldn't be, "Uh, I'm going to go where that crowd is and just go worship with them. Our thought would be, I want to tell everyone. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to my parents if they're still alive. I'm going to go talk to my siblings. I'm going to go talk to my friends. I'm going to go find those guys who always walk by, looked at me, and flicked a quarter. And I'm going to say, here you are. Right? That's human. But he saw the work of Jesus in his own life. And his desire was not to run out yet, not to go someplace else, but his desire was to seek the presence of God in worship. Now what's unique about this is if you were crippled, you weren't allowed to worship in the temple. The Old Testament law prohibited those who were crippled from worshiping in the temple. Leviticus 21, verses 17 through 20 says this. And it's an important passage because it's part of the story that often goes overlooked. This man had been left outside the confines, believing that he was under the judgment of God. See, in verse 17 of Leviticus 21, it says this. Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout your generations who have any blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long. Or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. The point was that his first desire was to worship God, was to go into the presence of God, to seek the presence of God. When we hear the name of Christ How are we to respond? We're to respond by seeking to be in His presence in worship. We're to seek Christ's presence in worship. When I got in high school, one of the things that was kind of a way that I rebelled was through my language. My language was probably one of the hardest things to recapture back after Christ, and it's still not where it should be. But I used to always wonder, why is it that God really cares if we use his name in vain? What what does it really matter? And as I looked at it, people would say, well, God just says it. And he does, and that should be enough. But the reality is, is that we see in this passage, why not? Because this name has power. And to trivialize his name is to trivialize his work on the cross through Jesus Christ. So we're to seek his presence in worship. The second way to respond here, it says in verse 8, it says, And he went walking and leaping and praising God. We're to praise him for his redeeming work. When we hear the name Jesus Christ, we're to move to a place of praise. So we start where we are responding in worship, then we're to move to a place of praise. I was thinking about that. 
that as often as we hear the name of Jesus, we should be moving to praise. Wouldn't it be interesting if we heard other people use that name and we actually walked through that together and we heard his name being invoked even in a negative way, we begin to praise God? See, when we hear the name of Jesus Christ, it should cause us to praise him. And this praise was not to be just a subtlety. It doesn't mean that we go walking and leaping. But it does mean that in our heart, we go walking and leaping. And the third way that we respond here to his name is that we're to testify to the truth of his healing. We're to testify to the truth of his healing. Notice what it says in verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. He, he, he wasn't shy about what Christ had done. He, he wasn't belligerent about what Christ had done. But he walked it out in the joy and the expression that God had. Some of you I've shared with before that I went to seminary with a guy who walked down the hall every day and as you walked by and you said hello to him, he'd say, all for Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, at 8 o'clock in the morning, it was annoying. <laughs> it was. And I'm like, this guy cannot be for real. He cannot be for real. And I remember getting to know him and it still was at the back of my head, is there anything else And this guy had a genuine love for the Lord. I didn't know him real well. Because often when I passed him, it was just that saying. But as I got to know him, I began to see that his heart was actually real genuine. This individual ended up leaving seminary after a year going, and I lost touch with him. His love for Christ was genuine and real. Today, He has ministered to over 500,000 people in Central America with the gospel. It's a pretty profound thing. It's pretty profound as a brother in Christ to look at and question somebody else, is it not? My own judgmental heart. Because I was uncomfortable with the way that he was praising God. Listen, we need to praise God with the enthusiasm that God has called us to. And we need not be ashamed for attributing and giving God the credit for his work. It doesn't mean that we become obnoxious. It just means that in our heart that we begin to praise him and that outwardly we testify to his truth by living a life that's reflective of that change. We don't live in secret. When we go to our workplaces, we live with a boldness in our faith. It doesn't mean that we're constantly declaring, repent, and believe. It does mean that our lives look different from the others that we work with. Are we participating in the gossip that's going on at work? Or are we stepping away? Are we walking in truth and honesty with others? Or are we too being deceitful? Are we slow to anger or are we quick to anger? Do we demonstrate mercy when justice might be the rightful response? 
See, we need to testify to the truth of his healing. Psalm 107.20 says this. It says, He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. We need to live a life where we're delivered from the sinful destruction that was at work within us before. And that becomes a light to a world that desperately needs his grace. So here's the key. We see this in verse 10. At the heart of this passage is a man who has been redeemed. And it says, And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Lives transformed through the name of Jesus Christ declare his glory to a world in need of redemption. Lives transformed through the name of Jesus Christ declare his glory to a world in need of redemption. When our lives, when we testify to the truth, the healing truth of Christ, when we begin to grow in righteousness, when we begin to see Christ's healing over our lives from our sinfulness, we declare the truth of God through Christ's grace. And we allow others to see the truth of his redemption. My hope for us is that we might be a people who see the power in the name of Jesus and rejoice over his redemption, knowing that it is through God's power that he can do or make the impossible possible. He can save the sinner who is destined for hell, make them right before him through the blood and work of the cross, redeem us, and one day not only redeem us spiritually, but also redeem us physically, so that he might be glorified, honored, and worshiped. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you that we can come before you and just look at the story that for some of us, we've heard it different times. God, I pray that we would walk out with a new appreciation for the healing of this lame man. Father, what a great joy for him to experience total physical healing now of those legs. But more importantly, God, what a tremendous spiritual healing you did there. You took a sinner's heart and you made it new through the blood and work of the cross. Father, thank you that we get to share in your redemption. And Father, may we respond in the same way by worshiping you, by praising you, and by testifying of your truth as we hear your name. And we ask this in your name. Amen.